Hello again, I'm Dr. David White. It's CRIM 305. This is week 12 on the role of corrections. What is the role of corrections in today's society? The idea of our criminal justice system hinges on the belief that the system's purpose is to arrive at justice. But justice for who? For the victim? For society? The reality is that we are a very punitive society and we incarcerate about 700 per 100,000 people in the U.S., which is radically higher than other Western industrialized countries, such as the U.K., who um, um, have 147 per 100,000 incarcerated, France, 98 per 100,000, or Canada, 118 per 100,000. The reasons behind our correctional strategies are tied both to our Protestant Christian foundation uh, and to utilitarian ideals of the Enlightenment era. Uh, we believe that wrongs must be punished and we tend to be less punitive when the criminal attempts or accepts responsibility and seems to repent. As a group, we want to ensure a crime control orientation, in the words of Packer, uh, to keep most folks from thinking it might be okay to break the law and thereby intrude on our freedom. They intrude on our freedom in that they are not agreeing to the terms of the social contract, which has deemed their behavior criminal. We strike an odd balance between wanting to punish the individual and wanting to treat or rehabilitate them in some way. In the later part of the 20th century, these two ideas of punishment versus treatment morph into a growing concern over the offender's risk. Uh, as a society, we increasingly focus on the idea of incapacitation, which is the belief that we should hold an offender in order to prevent them from engaging in future crimes. This idea uh, is really only connected to punishment and treatment insofar that one who is not deterred uh, or is not responsive to treatment should be inca incapacitated longer uh, because of their risk um, over someone, for example, who is viewed as less of a threat. This logic of risk is, at least in part, why white-collar criminals are generally not formally inca incapacitated for any great length of time when compared to other criminals that are viewed as more risky to everyday life and civility. We have a duty to avoid cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment of the Bill of Rights, which includes uh, including unusual punishments not generally applied in the practice of penality, unnecessary, excessive uh, in relation to the crime, or things that might otherwise shock the conscience. Uh, that is, sort of um, be out of the ordinary. Uh, this breaks the standard of decency. But there is a historical reason why we had to institutionalize this agreement in writing in 1789. By and large, our system is built on utilitarian concept of the utilitarian concept of rational choice and deterrence. That is to say, in the context of the social contract, we want the government to maintain a system of punishments that encourages most people not to break the law. For those who would break the law, we want them to be sufficiently deterred from reoffending by having suffered a severe enough punishment, uh, though the punishment should fit the crime. This is 
often expressed as general deterrence, where society's uh, observation of the threat of punishment and of being caught and punished for a particular crime is sufficient to prevent most people from wanting to offend. Specific deterrence is that deterrent effect on the individual who is caught and subjected to punishment. The utilitarian nature of how we frame the proper level of deterrence might be best taken up under the Rawlsian idea of justice, under that veil of ignorance that was introduced in an earlier module. Specifically, we must punish only to the extent that the loss of liberty would be agreeable were one not to know whether one were to be the criminal, the victim, or a member of the general public. That is to say, uh, would we think the punishment is fair if we were to find ourselves guilty of the offense? There are three basic purposes that guide our correctional policy. First, to a certain extent, punishment is intended to be retributive, that is, an eye for an eye. Retributive punishment is based on the concept, or retributive justice, rather, is based on the concept of punishment, uh, whether it's justice for a particular victim or because someone violated the social contract and society must punish them. Retrib uh, retributive uh, aspects seek justice through punishment of those who violated uh, the social mandates of the law. Beyond that, society should not attempt to manipulate uh, the purposes of punishment for any other ends. The retributive justice concept conflicts in some ways with correctional punishment's efforts to reform or rehabilitate. And the second purpose is to restore the offender to society, known as restorative justice. So rehabilitative ideals as well as those uh, attempts to reconcile the victim and offender fit into this restorative justice model. Uh, where there's an effort not to punish the offender, but to restore them to society. We tend to consider criminals as deviants. They are not normal. They are nonconformists. And as such, we seek to rehabilitate them and bring them in line with society's perception of normality. We want them to be good citizens, just like the rest of us, i.e. conformists. As such, the system of corrections employs a variety of tactics to reform and rehabilitate offenders. And we measure the success of the, the process by such benchmarks as the offender's recidivism. And so recidivism is the criminal's tendency to reoffend. Finally, as we move past the efforts to rehabilitate, we find simply the need to minimize society's risks by locking up risky, law-breaking people who are not likely to be reformed. This third purpose is known as the incapacitation model. At this point, uh, we have to ask ourselves, is it really about justice or about the group over the individual, about the utilitarian need to control threats? Um, although you would not think uh, it is very just if an offender with a lengthy rap sheet were uh, to do something horrific to you or your family members, you would immediately blame the system for not taking the proper steps to secure this person in such a way as to mitigate the threats they pose to society. Three strike laws, uh, our use of life sentences, even the death penalty fits the risk model. Minimizing society's risks may be placing or be, may be placed under the idea of the incapacitation model. We simply want to incapacitate the offender and keep them separate from society. Again, all of these concepts are built more or less on utilitarian philosophy. 
from a critical standpoint, critical perspective, Foucault, in his book Discipline and Punish, introduces a critique of the shift from the focus on the sovereigns, that is the state's power, to punish the physical body, the body of the condemned, uh, which served as a public spectacle, as a clear reminder of the sovereign's ability to maintain order, to the sovereign's more subtle and somewhat secretive disciplining and reformation of their subjects' minds. So this shift from the physical body uh, to controlling the mind. And in the context of penality, the sovereign's power is exercised behind the walls of the prison uh, or openly in the house of reformation where the prisoner uh, as an otherwise non-conforming deviant individual is forced into labor or where his day is completely controlled from sunup to sundown. Those with more authoritarian views uh, tend to particularly enjoy the notion of boot camps where this experience is highly regimented and aggressive. Foucault opens the book with a very graphic depiction of a public execution from the mid-1700s whereby the accused Damien the Rechicide uh, was to be taken into the public square wearing only a shirt and placed on a scaffolding where his flesh will be torn from his breast, arms, and thighs and calves with, with red-hot pincers, uh, his right hand holding the knife with which he had committed a said parricide, burnt with sulfur, uh, and on those places where the flesh be torn away, poured molten lead, boiling oil, burning resin, wax, sulfur, melted together, and then his body drawn and quartered by four horses, and his limbs and body consumed by fire, reduced to ashes, and his ashes thrown to the wind. Direct quote from Discipline and Punish. This is, uh, or this was, the formal exercise punishment of an offender. This is not a fictional tale. He's giving a public account of a public execution from the late 1700s. After retelling and summarizing the public account of the execution, Foucault then illustrates the shift away from this reality towards modern prison reform ideas over the course of a 100-year period that followed. For Foucault, the powers uh, that were able to physically torture and kill a condemned citizen have not magically disappeared, but they have instead shifted slowly from the physical punishments that were carried out in the public eye to a series of methods or what he calls uh, modalities um, that involve more secrecy. For people in power, physical punishment, particularly in the front of the masses, was no longer uh, palatable. Uh, but there remains a need to exercise power over those subjugated uh, to the authority of the sovereign. We are fascinated by criminals <clears throat> and sometimes idealize them. This is not only true in a, in a modern American context, but this reality exists across cultures and across history. Historically, as the condemned criminal was put to public execution, they almost became a hero of sorts to citizens, especially if they stood defiantly against the power of the sovereign in accepting their fate. The shock factor, therefore, no longer benefited the sovereign, so these practices disappeared and morphed and moved out of the public sight. Executions are now rare, generally occur behind closed doors. As this shift from the physical punishment to other modalities uh, of control occur, Foucault identifies what he suggests is a three-pronged approach to the use of control of prisoners. This includes surveillance, normalization, and constant examination. He believes this process 
which he extracts from the utilitarian concepts of Jeremy Bentham, offers a more subtle form of control. Part of this approach is associated with what uh, is known as Bentham's panopticon, is a building structure often used in prison that places the guard shack at the center of the room where prisoners are always felt as though they are under the constant uh, surveillance as pictured in the module. Um, it is a kind of all-seeing eye, especially when it has mirrored glass uh, that ensures the prisoner never knows when there is actually a guard watching them. Obviously, video surveillance technology now serves a very similar purpose, um, which was not present in 1975 when Foucault gave this lecture or wrote the book on Discipline and Punch. The approach to surveillance combines with normalized actions, highly controlled standards and procedures regarding how someone's time is used, and the expectations of behavior. For prisoners, uh, the prison sets their time schedule from the time they get up to the time they are ordered to go to bed. The final element is the examination, includes uh, the need to satisfy certain folks who get to decide if you are capable of conformity. That is, that you will no longer be a deviant. This includes, for example, a parole board or a prison psychologist. Foucault applies this framework of surveillance, normalization, an examination, not just to prisoners, but he applies it more broadly as a, uh, to society as a system of social control. That is to say, he offers it as social critique of power, um, which is used historically in the execution of the condemned, was well, not about uh, controlling the one that was sentenced to death. It was about controlling those who watched the execution in a way that reminded them that they were subjects of the sovereign's authority. Again, based on utilitarian roots, this framework uh, ensures good compliance to the social contract. It's applied throughout society's various ways that they control individuals to ensure and bring about conformity to the social contract. And in the prison context, it is only uh, as in its most extreme form of exercising power. Think about a work environment where your employer's surveillance over you um, through the supervision, through video surveillance, through the time clock, through work logs uh, that monitor your behavior. Think about the employer's normalization of the rules of the workplace, the development of standards, the use of a work uniform, etc. And finally, think about your employer's constant examination through evaluations and so forth that are meant to control you as an employee. Uh, in this way, you as a citizen become simultaneously a subject of control and an agent of control for others. This all becomes a way of controlling society uh, without the coercive threat of that physical punishment. To bring this back to the penal system, the focus of criminal justice is not justice or fairness. It is to bring about reform of the human subject. It is about the systematic uh, modality which helps ensure compliance to power uh, that we all call conformity. There's a reason uh, we construct criminals as abnormal, as nonconformists, uh, who are in need of being, quote, rehabilitated. Uh, rehabilitated to what? They need to be rehabil rehabilitated insofar 
as we want them to simply conform. Purpose of the justice system is to help ensure conforming, uh, harmless, law-abiding, tax-paying citizens who are also useful subjects who will uh, willingly and, and normatively accept the power structures of society. For Foucault, uh, we idealize criminals, we cheer for the condemned because they remind us uh, in a way of what we are, law-abiding, uh, active participants in our own control in a social prison that forces us to conform and we desperately at times want to break out and exert ourselves against that aspect of control. That's not my critique, that's his critique in Discipline and Punish. Change, uh, changing forms of control as we see a reduction in the number of people in jails and prisons and as we seemingly move away from a more punitive sentencing structure, what other uh, systems grow to absorb the shift? My guess is that we will see increases in probation parole and uh, um, collections of other alternatives, particularly for drug addicts. We already see drug courts, we see veteran courts, these sort of things to sort of reduce punitive nature of how we deal with those aspects of population. As we let people out of prison, uh, will we see crime rates increase? If so, at what point will it create enough social upheaval to instill more punitive policies once again? Essentially, will the cycle repeat itself? So what is the purpose of corrections? Is it retributive? Is it restorative? Is it all about incapacitation? The reality is we tend to conflate these and in uh, the competition of ideas we end up with a mixture where the purpose uh, or I should say purposes are not always clear. They are subtle and in some ways nearly ignored in the public discourse unlike the highly visible practices of policing. While we tend to think about Republican or conservative ideas as being more uh, punishment focused, the Republican Party has of late supported reducing the number of incarcerated people, if only because it's simply too costly. Democrats, i.e. liberals, uh, tend to lean more towards reform and rehabilitation. Regardless of these differences in the reasons, bipartisan support in the current era tends to move towards alternatives of traditional incarceration. If you're a student of criminal justice, regardless of whether you plan a career in corrections or not, you should pay attention to some of the public discourse um, and to the reasons why uh, we incarcerate people, how we control them, to policy changes and to changes in corrections, um, and how they impact the criminal justice system at large.